0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we are starting a five-part series that I have chosen to call Sudden Impact. In these five weeks, we will cover such topics as church, worship, prayer, witness, and giving. All of this will be pointing us toward the goal of making a sudden impact as individuals and as a church. Now, as we begin, and as you reflect back on today's reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-11, through 11, let me ask you this. Have you ever noticed that some Bible passages are crystal clear and easy to understand, and some passages aren't? Today's reading is one of those that we'd say is aren't. I mean, they are hard to understand, at least on the surface. Peter talks about priests and sacrifices and construction material, Symbolism that isn't easy to understand, but in the midst of this passage, there is also straightforward advice on how to live the Christian life. In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter challenges us to dare to be different. He dares us to make an impact. But now, in these verses, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 2, we see more about that difference and how being different makes a difference in the world in which we live. Now, Peter uses a term in this passage that is translated in the King James as peculiar. In verse 9, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, if you were to read that in the New International Version, it would be translated unique. And in other versions, it's called different. And we really are to be peculiar people, unique people, different people if we're Christians. Different because we belong to him different in order to make a difference in the world. Now, to experience this difference-making difference, to make an impact, both as individuals and collectively as a church, let me suggest to you that this text tells us to do three things. Now, first of all, we need to get into the Word. Peter ends chapter 1 with the statement in verses 24 and 25, The grass withers and the flowers fall away. But the word of the Lord will last forever. These words are taken from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It refers not only to Isaiah's prophecy, but to the entire Old Testament, and Peter says it applies to the message of the gospel as, as well. It's the word of God, and it stands forever. Peter says now in verse 2 like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. In other Bible verses, the word translated crave is rendered long for. It's a word that describes a strong desire. Peter is saying that we need to develop a strong desire for the word of God. Now, do you know the best way to do that? It's really pretty simple. All you need to do is read it. I've learned that the more time I spend in the word, the more time I want to spend in the word, there's no such thing as a saturation point. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, Nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. And You know, it's amazing to me that passages that I read and understood and believed and followed when I was like 11, 12, or 13 years old continue to speak to me today, albeit on a different level. I've got one of the first Bibles that I, I, I ever had to buy. I think I was probably a 6th or 7th grader back at St. John's in Seward, Nebraska. And for confirmation, we had to buy a Revised Standard Version. Now, I started doing something back then, which is a little bit unheard of. That's I started writing in my Bible. I started underlining things, and I would write comments down. I had that Bible through confirmation, and then through my four years at Concordia High School, and then for four more years at Concordia Teachers College and Seward while I was majoring in Biblical Theology. I had that through approximately 20 years of teaching and continued to underline and make notes. And I carried it to the seminary where I actually had to have that Bible rebound. But again, wrote notes in, sometimes this time in Greek and in Hebrew. When I take that Bible off the shelf today and I look at it, I'm flat-out amazed at what I was thinking about a particular Bible passage when I was in junior high or high school or college, or even when I was first teaching, or even when I was at the seminary. And I look at that passage, and I still see something new. Now, Recently, a man told me that Christians, in his opinion, just read the Bible to confirm their preconceived ideas. A little while later, he mentioned that when he sat he listens to country music. I couldn't help but saying, doesn't that just make you sadder? He laughed and he said, yeah, usually it does. Well, I guess he thinks Christians read the Bible for the same reason he listens to country music, to continue feeling a certain way. But friends, anyone who reads the Bible knows that this is not the purpose it serves. I read my Bible when I'm sad, but certainly not because it confirms my feelings of sadness. I read the Bible when I'm sad because it challenges me to think a new way about life. It it encourages me to find joy. I mean, the same can be said when I'm angry or frustrated or depressed or confused and, and on and on. When I read the, the Word, it changes my entire outlook on life. Christian author uh, James McCosh wrote, The book to read is not the one that thinks for you, but the one that makes you think. No book in the world equals the Bible for that. You know something? He's right. Reading the Bible causes you to think about your life. It it causes you to think about what you're doing and where you're going. It, It helps you to live right. That's why David wrote in Psalm 119, I think it's verse 11, Thy word have I treasured in my heart. Or In the King James, I think it says, Thy word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. That's also why Peter wrote about those who don't believe in verse 8. He said they stumble because they don't listen to God's word or obey it. To experience the difference making difference, to make an impact, for this church to make an impact, we must get into the word. That's why I want to encourage you to, to think about being involved in Courageous Men, which we're going to start in September. To be involved with a variety of different women's Bible studies and the I Have Good News for You class and adult Bible class on Sunday and adult class on Tuesday mornings and Sunday school, you need to get into the Word. And second, stay connected to Jesus. See, Peter now challenges us to know who we are in Jesus. And believe me, it's really important to know who you are in Jesus. I remember a number of years ago being sent to the store Uh, to buy uh, some groceries, and I'm a typical man, I'm not really crazy about going to the store, and so I kind of attack it the, the same way somebody would attack the Indianapolis 500 or working in the pit crew, I try to get there as fast as I can, do the shopping as fast as I can, and get out of there as fast as I can, to see whether I can break a record, so as I'm driving to the store, I'm already trying to figure out exactly where I can find the items on that list. Well, I charge into the store, grab my card, up and down the aisles, grabbing things, throwing them in. They're moving as quickly as I can. And when I was all done, I looked down the aisle, and I saw a cashier standing there all by herself. So I very quickly headed to that open aisle, but I was immediately cut off by two women who crashed their cards together in front of me, and they began to fight. They began to yell at each other. I was a little bit taken aback, but then I thought to myself, hold it. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be good at settling disagreements. So I stepped forward, and then I made my first mistake. I put my hand on each of their shoulders. Then I made my second mistake. I said, ladies, please. When I did this, one lady turned around and she said, Just who the hell do you think you are? You know something? I didn't know the answer to that. I kind of pulled my cart out of the line and went to another one. But you know something? I was about halfway home and the answer came to me. Did that ever happen to you? Somebody asked you a question, you didn't know the answer, but after a little while you did know the answer. I wanted to turn around and I wanted to tell that lady, I'll tell you who I am. I'm a baptized child of God. Now, if I would have had chapter 2 of First Peter on my mind, I might have said the two things that he tells us. He says, first of all, we're living stones. In verses 4 and 5, he says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, it's interesting that Peter would use this metaphor of stones or rocks because Jesus had said to him back in Matthew 16, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, you probably know that the name Peter means rock. Now, of course, Peter understood that Jesus was not saying that he, Peter, is the foundation of the church. He knew Jesus is the foundation. Peter understood that he, like us, is one of the living stones that make up the building of the church. So what he's saying is this, you're a stone. Your place is in God's building. So, friends, if you consider yourself to be a member of this church, you need to be here. You need to be a part of this place and not apart from this place. You know, by itself, a single stone can't do much good, though I did take out a bunny in my front yard about a year ago with one, but that's a whole other story. But, you know, if you combine that single stone with a lot of others, it can be a majestic structure. Peter is saying, your role is to be a living stone in God's building. Second, he said, you're a royal or a holy priesthood. The Bible teaches the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. That's something Martin Luther latched onto. It means that we all have equal access to God, and we don't need a human go-between in our relationship to God. In other words, I don't need a preacher, I don't need a church, I don't need anyone else. It's really all between me and Jesus. Now, I'll grant that that's overstating the case, but remember, Peter talked about the priesthood of believers in the context of our role in the church. Yes, we have equal access to God, but it's important, and it's important to remember that, but it's also important to remember that we equally belong to one another. William Barclay, who's a Bible commentator, makes an interesting point here. The Latin word for priest is pontifex, Pontifex, P O N T I F E X, which means bridge builder. Barclay says the priest is the man who builds a bridge for others to come to God, and the Christian has the duty and the privilege of bringing others to the Savior whom he himself has found and loves. Now, Peter also says in verse 5 that we are to be offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's talking about the content of Of our lives. Now, I wonder, this is figuratively speaking, if I could kind of grab you by the ankles and lift you up and shake you, and I wondered what the content of your lives might be when it was all shaken out. Well, what Peter's talking about here is the content of our worship, the content of our prayers, the content of our service. You know, friends, all ministry, all mercy, all compassion is really a sacrifice to Him. It made me think this last week when I was worshiping at another church up in Omaha, Nebraska. When I walked out, somebody asked me, So what did you think of worship today? I said, you know, what I think of worship today is not nearly as important as what God thought of my worship. Now, I understood what the person was saying, but I think we also need to stop every once in a while and realize that what we think about it is not as important as what God thinks about it. Now, experiencing the difference that makes a difference requires that you stay connected to Jesus, that you know who you are in him. You have to stop calling yourself a failure, a loser, an underachiever, a hothead, or disorganized, or undisciplined, or lazy, or every other bad name that you may be tempted tempted to pin on yourself. I mean, give yourself a new label. I mean, like, I thought later after I was stuck for an answer momentarily, I'm a baptized child of God. I'm I'm a rock. I'm a living stone. I'm part of God's temple. I'm a priest. I'm a bridge builder. I belong to God. Verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So get into the word. Stay connected. And third, be a stranger to danger. In verse 11, Peter tells us to keep a safe distance from sin. To be a stranger, he says, keep a safe distance from sinful desire. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Did you notice that word, desires? Have you ever struggled with a sinful desire? Yeah, I know you have. I do too. Well, maybe it's something you'd never do, but the desire to do it just won't let you alone. I mean, for example, there are people who would never commit sexual sin, but they're never very far from the thought of it. Or there are people who would never seek revenge, but every day they rehearse what they ought to say or what they ought to do to the person who offended them. And even though these acts might never be committed the desire alone to commit to sin. We have to remind ourselves that sinful thoughts fan the flame of sinful desires, and according to our text, sinful desires wage war against the soul. I also love this little phrase where Peter says we should view ourselves as aliens and strangers. It's kind of like that old hymn that says, I'm but a stranger here, heaven is my home. Or as the late great Christian singer-songwriter Larry Norman said, I'm only visiting this planet. Have you ever visited a foreign country with customs that seem strange to you? You know, by God's grace, I've traveled all around the world and have been in a variety of different countries. And I always feel a little bit out of place. And the the way that you see it most often is what they eat. In Brazil, for example, I just couldn't get used to their pizza. I mean, they put chicken on it. I know you're saying, well, a lot of people put chicken on it. But, you know, on top of the chicken, they sometimes put scrambled eggs and sometimes even bananas, and then they dip it in ketchup. I, I didn't want to be a, a non-participatory. I, I truly wanted to immerse myself wholeheartedly into all aspects of their culture. But, friends, I've got to tell you, when it comes to pizza, I have some pretty strong convictions. I mean, as much as I love ministering in Brazil, when I am there, I live as an alien and as a stranger. I stick strictly to sausage and mushroom. Now here's my point. It's impossible for us to visit a foreign country and not feel just a little bit out of place. We never forget we're foreigners, and there's another place that we call home. It's the same for believers, and even more so. The differences between America and Brazil are merely cultural. The differences between this world and our home in heaven is ideological. This world tells us to believe one thing. God tells us to believe another. This world tells us to think one way. God tells us to think another. This world tells us to live one way, and God tells us to live another. He's telling us to be a stranger to danger. Don't get too comfortable with this world's ways. Keep a safe distance from sin involves keeping a big distance from sinful desires. Keeping an attitude of alienation from this world's way of thinking and making every effort to live above the crowd. Finally, Peter says in verse 12, Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's an interesting phrase, though they accuse you of doing wrong. Friends, believe me when I tell you this. It's a fact of life that if you seek to live for God, there will be times when you are accused of either doing the wrong thing or doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Boy, have I been there, done that, and owned the t-shirt. You know, when you remain true to your convictions, you will be accused of being narrow-minded. When you are confident of God's direction for your life, you will be accused of being arrogant. When you refuse to back down in the face of opposition, you'll be accused of being stubborn. And when you experience God's blessing in your life, you'll be accused of doing it all for your own glory. Yes, they will accuse you of doing wrong. Your challenge is to live in such a way that their accusations do not have staying power or sticking power. You'll be accused of doing the wrong thing or having the wrong motives. But friends, the emptiness of those allegations will eventually come to light, if not sooner than later. Don't let unfounded accusations prevent you from taking the hard right against the easy wrong. As Christ followers, friends, we are called to be different. Different in such a way that we make a difference in the world. Do you want to make a difference in the world? Then get in the Word. Stay connected to Jesus and be a stranger to danger. Keep a big distance from sinful desires. Remember, friends, that you are only visiting this planet, and with the power supplied by the Holy Spirit, make every effort to live above reproach. It may not always be easy, but by His grace, you can do it. You, we, this church, can make a sudden impact.